praying for me, and uh, it's great to, to see you here. If you've got your Bible, um, I'm going to give you two passages. This morning is going to be a, a more topical sermon, so I'm not going to take one passage and work through it, but we'll be drawing in a lot of scriptures from different places. But I'm going to give you two sections that I'll refer to uh, during the course of my message to you. And the first one up on the screen is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. From verse 20. And I'm trusting this morning that this message will be a beautiful dovetail with uh, the testimony and the baptism that we've uh, experienced together with Bridie. So Paul writes to the Corinthians and says to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. The second passage is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 6 to 10, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll start. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. Father, this morning, I pray that you would take this word from your word, and you would indeed plant it deep, deep within the very fiber in the very soul of our beings. And pray you'd use this message in a very special way to, to both grow your people and to embolden them to preach the glorious grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Let me give you a, a title. We're, we're on our series. It's uh, We Are Church, Volume 2, and there's a title for you this morning, Christian Convictions. Christian Convictions, and as I said, I'm going to draw it from various parts of the Bible. Well, just to remind you that that's where we've been over the last while. Week one, we did elders. Week two, we did deacons. Week three, we looked at church habits, which was last week, and this morning, we're going to look at Christian 
conviction. So let me give you a very uh, simple definition of the word conviction. It is a firmly held belief or opinion. A firmly held belief or opinion. Every human being has convictions at varying levels of formulation and intensity. Some convictions are held very strongly, others less so. Convictions can change over time. We can also hold strong convictions and not act on them, which we would consider a form of hypocrisy. I mean, you could, for example, be very, very convicted about sin in your life, a particular sin, but you keep on doing it again and again and again. Convictions are life drivers. Convictions determine our priorities, the decisions we make. It would be a very interesting exercise for you to take some time and write down what were your convictions about life before you were saved, and now write down your convictions and how they've changed now that you are saved, now that you are a Christian. When you become a Christian, when you become born again by the Spirit of God, I hope you realize you get a brand new everything, right? Just about everything changes. You get a new life. You get a new father. You get a new family, a new faith, a new hope, a new love, a new Lord, a new Savior. And you get a brand set, brand new set of convictions. All Christians have convictions. Some they would die on and some they wouldn't. The challenge, I think, for Christians at times is things we think, convictions we think we should die on, we shouldn't. And some things that we think we shouldn't die on, we actually should. I've been a Christian for 31 years, and some of my convictions over the years have really softened. There was a time when I would go into the gladiator arena for many, many things. Today, perhaps some of those I wouldn't. I've also had some very significant theologically convictions change over the years. It was just this week, in fact it was Saturday, yesterday, where I, uh, I expressed a particular conviction uh, in a particular space and someone came back to me and, and challenged me to go and rethink that conviction and I'm in the process of, of doing that. But this morning I want to give you four gospel convictions. I want to give you four convictions that as Christians we should die on. Someone wisely said it is easier to die for your convictions than actually live them. I hope by God's Spirit today that He might burn these convictions deep into your soul that we may well live for them and die for them if necessary. I want to put you this morning, these convictions are not negotiable. They are not theological gray areas. They are not disputable matters. And these four convictions we're going to give you this morning, they are the Bible's four, not the only four, but they are four from the Bible. They, they are therefore this church's convictions, ones for which we would both live and die. I think we've got to understand with gospel convictions, we... We, 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 the, these gospel convictions never change, but we, we do grow into them. It's not like you suddenly get saved and you suddenly have all of them all in one go at the right sort of level and intensity. But, but as we sit 
year after year and week after week under the Word of God, these convictions are planted deeper and deeper into the Christian soul. So let's start with our first one. The first one, our first conviction, is the reality of heaven and hell. This really is the ABC of biblical conviction because this conviction comes from the very reality of our salvation. We are saved from death unto life. We're saved from hell to heaven. We're saved from judgment for glory. We're saved from God to God. And Jesus spoke about the reality of hell many, many times, didn't he? Take Matthew 18, verse 9, for example, and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. When earthly life ends, there are one of two destinations. It's heaven or hell. And this really is the unseen reality of the gospel hope that Briley was talking about. Just because people can't see heaven, just because they can't see hell, doesn't make them places that are not real. And again, Jesus was not ashamed to talk openly about hell. In fact, telling people they would go to hell if they did not repent and believe in him. Remember these words in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, he was speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he said to them, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? I, I cannot even begin to tell you how many People claiming to be Christian will come up to me and say, we really should not make people afraid of hell. Not only as Christians are we saved from hell, but Jesus actually says you should fear the one who can send you to hell. Do you remember these words? Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and and body in hell. The eternal reality of unending hell for people who die without Christ is terrifying. Is terrifying. I don't know how, how many, um, I'm scared to ask this question. How many of you are Homer Simpson fans out there? Any? No, one's, no, I didn't think anybody would put up their hand. Uh, you, you need to, uh, <laughs> too scared to maybe, um, you, you need to watch that program with discretion. And, uh, and I'll do a disclaimer, this was sent to me, so I didn't watch it myself. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an episode in, in, in Homer Simpson, and uh, here he is. He, he's offered one chocolate. One cho you can have one chocolate now, today. Or you can wait and you can have a thousand chocolates tomorrow. What do you think he did? In true Homer Simpson, impulsive, self-gratifying, impetuous style, he took the one chocolate now, and he forfeited the thousand chocolates tomorrow. 
For whoever wants to save their life, Jesus said, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You see, because it's, it's earthly life now, and it's hell then. It's Jesus now, and it's eternal life then. The word heaven is mentioned at least 76 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. And not surprisingly, from the very mouth of Jesus himself. And a couple of examples, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And heaven is depicted as a kingdom. Uh, Matthew 5, 20, For I tell you, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, our gospel conviction is that there is a reality, a reality of, of heaven and hell, a kingdom of heaven and a kingdom of hell, if you like, we, we, which has a massive impact on the way that we relate to people, the way that we pray for people, the way that we prioritize the things we do in our church. It, it impacts who we support on the mission field. You see, if you imagine as John Lennon did, if you imagine there's no heaven above and no hell beneath, well then you will live very differently. You will, you will view people very differently. So, for example, in the church, we, we have limited time. We have limited resources. The needs of the world and the needs of community are massive. Christian care for the poor will involve all sorts of good works, but the reality the reality of heaven and hell is a much greater priority. It has a much bigger impact on the way, the way we pray, the way we spend our monies, the way we devote our time and energies. For example, running a, a soup kitchen may be a good thing. It may be important. It may be right. But it's not core. It's not core. The reality of heaven and hell is core. Let me show it to you in the Apostle Paul because he says this. And I, I want you to watch, just watch the flow and the logic and the, the impact of what he says. So he says, we've all got to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body with the good and bad. So we've all got to go to the judgment seat of Christ. What is the impact of that? Watch this, verse 11. The impact is so because we, we know what the fear of the Lord is, because we're going to the judgment seat in the context, we try to persuade others. We try to persuade others. And then impact, verse 16. So, therefore, now we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. You see, if... if the reality of heaven and hell is real, then you have to, you'll be compelled to, to reach out, to persuade others to reach out for heaven. And you can't just look at people in some sort of neutral, airy, fairy, evolutionary, everybody's a good kind of person going to a hairy, fairy type of place. 
See, with the reality of heaven and hell, people are heaven-bound or they're hell-bound. And you'd want to persuade them to call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. That's our first biblical conviction. Let me give you the second one, which I've called the cross of love. The cross of love. Because the one and only solution to the dreadful judgment that is waiting every man, woman, and child before a holy God is the love cross of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the cross of Christ where the Lamb of God was slain for our human sin. The cross is the only answer for the rescue of humanity from hell. I wonder whether you've ever stopped truly to ponder the incredible magnanimous price that was paid so that we can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever done that? I mean, truly stopped to ponder its incredible magnanimity. Have you noticed that people will pay exorbitant prices for things that will not pass the test of time? Have you noticed that? Have you, have you noticed they will pay extraordinary things for things they think are valuable that are not that valuable? Have you noticed that? I'll give you a couple. Hopefully this will come up. The Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich paid U.S. dollars 168 million for that. You really want to guess how much that painting by Leonardo sold for? 450 million US. Would you believe that someone paid 115,000 US dollars for a little bit of Elvis Presley's hair? Would you believe that? Can you believe that someone would pay $95,000 in Las Vegas to go and see a show by Taylor Swift? in their right mind would pay such an insane price. <laughs> Have you got a ticket for me, Trey? I mean, she's coming to Australia, isn't she? Anybody got a ticket for me? <laughs> I'll steal Tracy. She's paid, she's paid 100000 <laughs> The Father gave His glorious, splendorous, holy, only begotten, Eternal son for broken, warped, twisted, sinful human beings like us. There was no greater price that could be paid. There was no one more valuable than Jesus Christ. There is no price tag on Jesus Christ. So why would the Father pay such an exorbitant price for us? Why? Because that was the price of his love. That was the price of his love. He put it to you like this. For God so lavishly loved the world that he gave his one and only glorious eternal son that whoever believes in him will not perish in hell but have everlasting life in the heavenly kingdom. 1 John 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his precious son, as an atoning sacrifice for us. You see, 
The cross of Jesus is the most lavish display of love for sinners. Some people would even say that God's love was reckless. Aren't you glad it was reckless? See, it's, it's, it's the cross that is the, it's the narrow beam that leads to life from death. It's the cross that is the spiritual antidote to sin. It is the cross that is the antidote for spiritual AIDS. It's the, it's the antidote to the spiritual cancer of the soul. It is the only way in which a man, woman, and child can be reconciled to the Father. It's through the relentless, reckless, unchanging unending love of the cross for the world. There was a, there's a song, one of my favorite songs, and uh, some of you might know it. It's by Cody Carnes, and it's called Run to the Father. And here's some of the words. He wrote, you saw my condition. You had a plan from the start. Your son for redemption. The price for my heart. And I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand. I can't comprehend. All I know is that I need you. You see, again, it's, 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 it's the reality of the love cross or the, the, the cross of Christ that brings a, it brings a clarity and a perspective to the things that we do. It brings a perspective to things like seeking justice, alleviating poverty, curing sickness in the world. They, 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 they have their rightful place. They are important, but again, they're not core. They're not core. Let me show you something which is quite staggering and yet profound. In, uh, in, in, here's the context. In Mark 1, Mark 1.32, and I want you to notice this. Mark 1.32, it says, That evening of the sunset, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And so everybody from everywhere just came, and they came, and they came, and Jesus was healing, healing them all. And there was shortly after this, we, we, we pick it up. We pick it up in verse 36 because Jesus has now withdrawn and he's gone to a solitary place to go and pray and to his father. And, and it says, Simon and his companions, Mark 1, 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they, explained, they exclaimed, everyone, everyone is looking for you. Here's Jesus' reply. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Now, here's what's easy to miss. If Jesus left that place and went somewhere else to preach, he left sick people behind. He didn't heal everyone. He didn't leave because he didn't care. He didn't leave because he didn't have compassion. He was the most compassionate human being on the face of the earth. But it was the cross. It was his love for sinners that drove the priority. It wasn't about the healing in the here and now. So much as about the healing for the there and then. You see, what drove Christ was to take our sickness on himself. 
And to leave the issues of earthly sickness and poverty and justice to a future time. Have you noticed that the world is essentially on a relentless, reckless, unending desire to see all sickness eradicated? Have you seen that? Now, please do not hear from me this morning that I think that, that going for physical cures is a bad thing. Please don't think that. As I speak to you this morning, I have a mom that is dying from PSP, a degenerative brain disease. I have a sister, half-sister, who is dying from something called dystonia, which is a muscular disease that is literally eating her away. My heart aches. But with the reality of heaven and hell and without the cross of Christ, they will die. My mother will die and my sister will die and go to hell without Christ. Here's my third conviction for you. This morning, this world ends. I hope you can see they're all interconnected. They're all inter interlocked. So, so, so the world will end. But let me frame it this way. Let me ask the question in this way. Where is God taking the world? Where's God taking the world? Where's he taking history? Let me give you a little glimpse of that in one, um, Ephesians 1 verse 9, where he says, He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. And here it comes, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You say, where's God taking history? Where's he moving it towards? He, 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 he's taking heaven and earth to come under the blazing, splendorous, glorious authority of Jesus Christ to a point where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You see, the vision of God is a redeemed people in a redeemed creation under a resurrected, glorious Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And God is taking all of history to a place where there will be one day no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness. He is taking it to a place where God's people will one day only ever experience the relentless, unending, unchanging, reckless love of Jesus Christ in all its eternal glory. Can you imagine? John, John put it like this in Revelation 21. Very familiar words. He said, he said it's in the vision, apocalyptic vision. And I, I, heard, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 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 look. God's dwelling is now among, God, among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The Apostle Peter put it slightly differently. He put it like this. 2 Peter 3 verse 7, he said, By the same word, the present heavens and the present earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. There are many buzzwords today, colloquial buzzwords, and two of them would be renewable energy. Have you heard those words? Renewable energy. As you know, our world is hyper-investing in renewable energy. 
And the reason why they want to do it? Because they want to save the planet. They want to save us from global warming. But I think in Busselton after this winter, we need to be safe from global cooling. I don't know what's going on. I'm frozen half the time. But our Christian conviction is that the world doesn't last. It will end. It will end with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when every vestige of the sinful world will be removed and everything will be made new. So whether you are pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill, pan-mill, where everything pans out in the end, don't really matter. Because where we're going with renewable energies is that one day this world will end. And one day there will be a catastrophic showdown where the cosmic, splendorous Lord Jesus Christ appears in all his glory. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So let's listen to the words of the Apostle Paul when he put it like this in 2 Thessalonians one again, he said, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. He'll give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When will this happen? This will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. Please don't hear me say that it's a bad thing necessarily to invest in renewables. Please don't hear me say that it's not a good thing necessarily to make friends with renewable energy. But Jesus had a slightly different perspective. He said, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal dwellings. Because the world will end again, it will change our priorities, change the way we spend money, where we invest, where we pray, how we pray. Just back to that passage I read to you a little bit earlier. Let me read it to you again. You see, here's how Paul wanted to invest his life to the Jews. I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, so I can win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. To win the weak, I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. Do you see the difference? Do you see how biblical convictions impact the way you live? the way you think, the way you pray, the way you prioritize. Let me give you one more, and I'll close with this one. It's, uh, the brevity of life, it'll, it'll be brief, pun intended, because it's uh, fairly self-explanatory. 
Let me give you a couple of verses in this space. The brevity of life or the briefness of life. James said, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You see, life is fleeting and, and brief like a, like a mist that's here today and gone a few seconds later. Um, Here's the ESV on this one, 1 Peter 1, beautiful. All flesh is like a grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Psalm 39, 5, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is at nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. It's not scaremongering, scaremongering, and it's not morbid to say to you and to say to others that today might be your last day. Now, unless you're in real sickness and anticipating death or perhaps being in palliative care, unless you're in those sort of scenarios, you don't wake up every morning and say, today's going to be my last day, do you? That's not what you do. I mean, that tradie that went to the construction site didn't say, well, today I'm going to fall off and I'm going to die. The world will end. Every human life will end unless Jesus comes back before. And surely this must have an impact on the urgency of our proclamation. Because as Paul says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Riley, that's what you declared today, didn't you? That was your conviction. That was your stated position. That was your faith. Let me start to close with the sermon from Peter in Acts chapter 2. And be very familiar to you. It's after Pentecost. He preaches that Christ has been crucified and risen from the dead. And he says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. How do the people respond? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. And then this, and then this. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them and he sought to persuade them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. There are others, but there are four. The reality of heaven and hell, the cross of love, the world ends, the brevity of life. These are Christian convictions. They are not negotiable. They're not gray areas. They are the convictions 
of this church. And I would pray that as we are reminded of them again this morning, and typically physically through baptism again, that we would allow these convictions to drive us to want to make disciples more and more disciples in increasing measure. That it would drive us to want to plant new churches, to plant new congregations. What else can we do? What else can we do? But it would be a miss of me this morning to ask anyone here, is there anybody here that needs to respond to the gospel, that has not responded in faith to the Lord Jesus? Is there anybody here that is yet to come to this that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that you? Is that you? I want to both warn you and I want to plead with you and I hope in some way you've been persuaded this morning that there is a reality of heaven and hell. That this world ends. That there is a brevity of life. But there is a cross. There is a cross of love. That will save you from eternal damnation. Would you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. Take a moment just to sit. I'll ask the gathering team just to come up, just slowly and quietly, and um, Mark will close the service for us.